Americans place a high value on a college education. So it is disturbing when students witness institutions of higher learning closing. Closing before they have completed their program of study. Yet this is happening increasingly. As colleges too small to succeed and too big to recover, fail. Meanwhile, other students press on in a make-or-break attempt to graduate with promising futures. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my left, watching America. On my life, it's in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. It's disturbing, but true. Experts project that 25% of all colleges in America will fail in the next two decades. The trend started some years back, but this last year has seen multiple closings. Five colleges closed in New England alone. Southern Vermont College in Bennington, Vermont, the College of St. Joseph's in Rutland, Vermont, Atlantic Union College in Lancaster, Massachusetts, Green Mountain College in Western Vermont, and Newberry College in Brookline, Massachusetts, all closed. Is it fair to students, parents, and communities when well-established colleges are here today and gone tomorrow? Colleges are closing with little warning. Closing time. Open all the doors and let you out into the world Closing time Turn all of the lights on over every boy and every girl Closing time I am delighted to welcome to Watching America, Leah Wong. She is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers education and families. And most recently, she wrote an article called The Surreal End of an American College. She was referring to Newbury College. And Newbury College uh, has been in existence for about 57 years. Its motto, ironically, is Let It Flourish. Well, at least it did flourish, certainly from 1962. Located in Brookline, Massachusetts, on some 10 acres, its mascot, Nigel the Nighthawk, was seen gleefully at various basketball games and other events. However, it did fall on bad times. Not, though, before having acquired other colleges. Uh, Newbury College acquired the Holliston Junior College, the Graham Junior College, and what is known as Bryant and Stratton College. And that college in of itself was 110 years old at the time. It was, well, just basically assumed by Newbury College in 1975. But the following decades were not always that glorious and wonderful, uh, particularly in recent dates where, for instance, Newbury College, to try and attempt to attract new students, converted their library actually into a success center for their students. Well, the upshot of all of this is, regrettably, it did close this spring semester. And subsequently, uh, Aliyah Wong has taken a broad look at the ramifications of what this may mean for other small liberal arts colleges across the land. Aliyah Wong, welcome to Watching America. It's a delight to have you here. 
Thanks for having me. Um, how did you become aware of uh, Newberry College's problems? Was it, was it after the announcement or were you privy to some information prior to that? Yeah, it was, to be honest, it was after the announcement. I admittedly hadn't even heard of Newberry College until earlier this year. And and this is despite uh, being an alumna of a Boston area college. So it goes to show uh, just how saturated the the higher education market is in Boston and how obscure some of these colleges are. I had read about it in some news reports. Obviously, I am on the education beat and have been following uh, what's been an uptick in, in college closures across the country. And what drew me to Newberry uh, was that it was kind of a very average example of this trend. It wasn't particularly dramatic or sensational. There was a previous uh, closure a few months prior of a college called Mount Ida College, and that was uh, probably on the sensational and dramatic side of uh, the spectrum. It was very scrutinized and garnered a lot of of criticism, whereas this school, it kind of just uh, followed the, the kind of mundane trajectory of of um, struggle and then and then demise and it 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 did what it could to kind of ameliorate some of the 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 worst consequences of 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 this situation so that's what drew me to it well the college's latter president uh, Joseph Chilo um, said that when he came on board, he was aware that basically there was a, a hit-the-accelerator-break attitude, for lack of a better way of putting it. In other words, they weren't sure whether to forge ahead and throw all the money they could possibly garner at the institution or to say, no, let's face it, this this is a bad case patient, it's in demise, and pull the plug. Yeah, yeah. And I was actually surprised that he admitted to me when we, when we spoke that he was uh, very privy to, to this uh, this contingency, the the, the contingency that, that became a reality uh, and that it closed uh, before he, he accepted this position. He had been at the institution for uh, for more than a decade in various capacities, obviously most recently as its president. And he, he knew that, you know, it's, it's financial um, uh, sort of health kind of ebbed and flowed. He knew the larger landscape. He knew that uh, this that running college is inherently tricky. Um, and like you said, when he the first day as president, he he met with the board of trustees and they basically laid out two potential paths uh, for the college. It could um, go full steam ahead and just really invest in every potential um, means of salvaging the institution, whether that was providing new programs that were uh, that they that seem to be particularly attractive, things like sports management, which is a discipline that's gaining uh, in popularity uh, nationwide and is, is seems to be an attractive means of, of getting revenue for colleges. They explored uh, other study abroad opportunities new facilities. Uh, we all know that, that these days students uh, expect a lot more than an education when they attend a residential college. They want very fancy athletic facilities and, uh, and basically, you know, the, the most first-class living experience that, that they can get. And so it did dabble in all of these things, but um, 
unfortunately, at the end of the day, it didn't it didn't really suffice to to bring in the revenue they needed. I think they were already headed uh, into the red and couldn't really get out of that that space. It seems that really the issue is to to recognize what's happening and to move decisively. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, it, it's it's to it's to really be cognizant, and I think um, it, when you look at examples like Mount Ida, um, I, I didn't re- didn't do any reporting on that school, but what what I've read and what I've been told is that it it didn't really um, prepare its community for for what was happening. It kind of waited, and it is it is a tricky situation because you you want to avoid uh, being. Uh, yeah, announcing this this prospect too prematurely because then everyone kind of goes crazy and then it be, might become a self-fulfilling prophecy if it's not necessarily going to end up that way. But the alternative of just waiting and, and just holding out and pretending everything is dandy when it isn't, that uh, obviously can have even more dire circumstances. So you really have to be nimble. Um, and, and in many cases, it's, it's really a catch-22, and, and you kind of just have to, to go with the lesser of two evils. Well, you note in your article that between 2013 and 2014, there were for four-year colleges, which incidentally Newbury College did eventually become a four-year institution. Between 2013 and 2014, there were 3,122 four-year colleges or institutions of higher learning in the United States. By four years later, 2018, there were only 2,902. That's a 7% drop. To what do you attribute that? I think it's um, it's a combination of factors that become a vicious cycle. I think after the recession, a lot of colleges were just uh, struggling just like any other uh, corporation. I mean, colleges are businesses. Higher education is an industry. And so uh, the, the landscape was really hit by the recession. And then um, it, that also made students and their parents uh, a little more skeptical of, of how their money was being spent. You know, they're they're not going to spend fifty thousand dollars a year on a school that they're not confident in, and especially when these colleges already had lackluster uh, outcomes, whether it was low pretty or low graduation rates, um, or uh, just not the the best gainful employment results, then that's going to that's gonna further deter parents and, and their kids. Um, and so with, with that declining interest among uh, a big population that used to kind of funnel into their schools, they, the revenue further, further declined. And without the revenue, you don't really have a means of, of really investing, at least in, in, in a critical mass sense in the kinds of programs and improvements that would recapture the the populations that you're relying on. So it just kind of, it, it, it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. And I think a lot of these colleges were, were kind of trapped in that. I think a lot of them uh, were private or are private, and that's a difficult position to be in because you're not, you don't have the public funding to rely on. Not that the public funding has been particularly generous in recent years, but that was at least uh, some, somewhat of a buffer for public institutions. They're largely liberal arts schools, and again, that was that's a that's a factor that has been a little bit of a risk because there's a growing 
um, a skepticism that, that a liberal arts education is what people need to thrive in today's economy. People are thinking that they need more vocational, um, professional skills, not lessons on literature and philosophy. Um, and then a, a lot of them are either uh, single sex, which just as a as a culture, that's that's something that is of declining demand these days, um, or or religiously affiliated. And not only is there a decline in religiosity in this country, but but the religious identity often made their missions uh, quite uh, quite limited. And so, uh, absent kind of distancing from one's mission, you're you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so it was a, it was a combination of these factors, and the ones that have closed just found themselves at the middle of this perfect storm. Regarding Newbury College, uh, you indicate in your, in your article that 75% of the students were first-generation college attenders, and that essentially the majority of the students were either very poor or low economic students or students of color, and that nine in 10 of them receive federal aid for their education. Um, with the students who were struggling and with a rather, uh, shall we say, non-strenuous uh, application process for, for the rigors of, of high academics, schools tend to, in this, in this middle area of basically liberal arts colleges, find themselves trying to accommodate in various ways, uh, economically by providing scholarships so that the tuition is X amount of dollars, but actually it winds up being half of X. Um, is, is it simply a, a question of it being a enterprise of diminishing results because there's so much accommodations made in so many different ways, financially, uh, academically, etc.? Yeah, I think I think that's one definitely one one major thread that's connecting a lot of these schools. Uh, one one administrator uh, who was quoted in an Inside Higher Ed article that I, I cited in the piece described the practices that you just alluded to as as basically a race to the bottom. So these colleges are are offering discounts and scholarships and. And that's combined with the federal aid and the Pell Grants that, that these students are already getting. And um, that makes it, that further hampers them. I mean, obviously, the sticker prices are exorbitant and, and uh, these students deserve as, as much of a subsidy as they can get. But that's also going to uh, further deprive the institutions of the revenue they need, and and these kinds of schools are very tuition dependent. Um, I think Newberry was uh, over ninety five percent reliant on on student tuition, meaning that student tuition accounted for virtually all of its revenue, whereas um, a research institution. A big research university might uh, have a, a significant percentage of its revenue coming from uh, research and grants um, and, and, other, and other forms of income, athletics, where at these schools, all they really have is the, the tuition, and they don't have large endowments. So it's, it's, it kind of, uh, it again, creates a yet another catch-22 in that they're trying to appeal to students by creating all these discounts and these uh, incentives to come, but the incentives mean that they don't have the income. If you're just joining us, this is Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Aaliyah Wong, who has written an article 
for The Atlantic. She's on The Atlantic staff, and her article is entitled The Surreal End of an American College, which she examines the death, if you will, of Newbury College, which after 57 years has closed its doors and dormitories uh, this year. You reference Professor Harvard Professor Clayton uh, Christensen uh, in 2011, who asserted that online education online education would eliminate 50% of all institutions of higher learning by 2030. Do you think that's valid, or do you think that's um, particularly negative and pessimistic? I, I think I, I would say that, that it's, it, it already sh- appears to be exaggerated and um, a bit of a... a an overreach, I, but I do think that uh, the general gist that he is alluding to and that we are seeing um, this sort of cannibalistic system eat away at itself because of, of things like online education and other uh, disruptive innovations that are making it uh, hard for a traditional institution to survive. I think I think he was on to something, and, and we have seen, you know, like, you cited the the percentage, um, 7% of colleges between uh, 2013 and last year um, have have shut down. And I think the number is a little over 1,000 institutions. So that's not not negligible. And a a big chunk of those 1,000 colleges, 1,000-plus colleges, are traditional uh, nonprofit liberal arts schools. So um, I do foresee this continuing to play out, and uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of observers, including college presidents and, and advocates of higher education, say that in many ways this is uh, this is unfortunate but inevitable that this is a sort of Darwinian ecosystem in which the strongest survive and the weak ones don't, and that this is necessary for the system to continue improving and to continue accommodating the evolving needs and interests of students today. Well, one of the innovations, uh, either welcomed or regrettable, depending on your perspective or one's perspective, uh, came in the 1980s and flourished into the 90s and is very uh, prolific now. And that's the for-profit colleges, which have changed the landscape considerably. Although some would say they have an appalling graduation rate uh, and benefit substantially from uh, basically tuition being paid for by taxpayers, by student loans initially. Um, we have now for-profit colleges that, at the very least, are very savvy in how they market themselves. How are colleges like Newbury and others able to compete with with the um, very, very clever technique employed by these other schools that are, are strictly for-profit? Yeah, I think, I think one uh, major asset that the uh, traditional colleges have is, is that they do have these better outcomes and they don't face as much government regulation they're uh, with uh, in tandem with with the greater scrutiny on these for-profit colleges and their questionable recruitment and marketing tactics has come uh, a slew of, of government regulations so the government federal government and also s- several states have been really cracking down on these institutions and ensuring that they are not um, absorbing an unfair share of the student population or targeting already vulnerable students and, and 
leaving them with little more than a lot of debt and a degree that won't get them very far. Um, I think another another appeal that, that for-profit colleges can't really compete with is just the idea of a residential higher learning experience. And, and uh, I think, you know, it sounds maybe a little elitist to say that that's um, something that is inherent to a higher education uh, experience, but I think it is something that I hear time and time again from high schoolers of all uh, of all classes of, of all backgrounds that they want that traditional college experience. That's why a lot of students um, at Newberry, whom I spoke with, told me they were drawn to Newberry versus, say, the local community college, which which certainly would certainly be a lot cheaper and probably. Uh, ultimately, more productive learning experience given um, just uh, how institutionalized the community college system is. They wanted uh, they wanted that that kind of traditional, almost idyllic uh, uh, experience of going to college and being living in the dorms and having the dining halls and having these historic buildings surrounding you. So I think that brick and mortar. Um, almost idealistic uh, appeal is something that the for-profit colleges can't really compete with. But, but like you say, I think it is it is something uh, that a lot of colleges that are middle tier and uh, struggling financially are worried about and, and trying to overcome with different kind of innovations of their own. Regarding Newbury College specifically, did you get much opportunity to get a, a measure or, if you will, a, a temperature read on the morale of the faculty? Not just recently, obviously it can't be terribly encouraging to hear that your institution is going to close down, but the state it was in, say, five years ago. Yeah, I, I did. And um, I, uh, some professors did speak with me off the record, so I, I can't uh, I can't repeat too much, but I will say that, that it was, it it was, that the morale was always, at least in recent years, was always subpar. I think a lot of faculty, particularly those who've been there for a long time, maybe, um, you know, it's kind of obvious when, when things are, are, are going downhill, when, uh, there's a lot of just, Mystery around the state of the of the institution's finances, um, when things seem to be ebbing and flowing, when the message seems to be uh, disconnected from what is happening in conversations in private. But I, I also think that a lot of the the professors, particularly one I spoke with, um, who was on the record, she and has been there for decades. She. Uh, she drew her morale from the students um, and just the the, uh, the ability to in, to truly teach uh, and to truly feel like you're having a difference in someone's lives. Uh, you mentioned some of the statistics around the student population. These are largely disadvantaged students. These are uh, pro- predominantly students whose parents didn't go to college themselves, students who uh, relied on Pell Grants students 
who identified as people of color. So these aren't the traditional college population, quote unquote. And uh, the ability to have impact in those students' lives to show them that they have a, a promising future, that they too are the kinds of people who can benefit from a college education. I think that was a huge source of morale for the faculty, even when institutionally the politics were um, a little disillusioning. Based on your interviews, research and experience, what is your advocacy for institutions who find themselves broaching a similar plight? You know, I think... um I think I think the messages I got from a lot of people about this being uh, somewhat of an inevitable fate, uh, or is something to really to really internalize. Not I, I don't mean to 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 say suck it up, but I think uh, it's important to realize that to 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 basically acknowledge that a lot of the factors contributing to to what's happening right now are part of systemic realities in which there's no real culprit and no single victim, that this is this is part of a, a, a sort of tectonic shift that is unfortunately hurting some colleges, but that hopefully um, they uh, can use their experience as material that can serve as, as lessons, that they can uh, use it also to uh, continue to reiterate the, the importance of preserving things like the liberal arts and small institutions and colleges that are uh, maybe less or more obscure, but just as 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 valuable and and high caliber. I think the diversity of of the higher education landscape is something that is undervalued, um, as we, including people in the media, like me and you, uh, fixating on the elite colleges, the name brand institutions at the expense of all these other colleges. I mm. think it's, it's, it's something it, that that's one lesson that, that I've really gleaned and, and want to advocate for is just remembering just how nuanced this, this, uh, landscape is. Aaliyah Wong, it's been wonderful to have you on Watching America. For those who just joined us, um, you have been listening to Aaliyah Wong indeed, and she has written an article called The Surreal End of an American College, which has been an, uh, an examination of the, the circumstances for the closure of Newbury College in Massachusetts. And she is a staff writer indeed for The Atlantic, where the article appears. Thank you very much, Aaliyah. We look forward to talking to you again in the near future, perhaps and you have another article. We look forward to it with great anticipation. Thank you so much. I look forward to that as well, and hopefully it's a more optimistic article next time. <laughs> Let's hope. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Watching America with host Dr. Alan Campbell.
Increasingly, psychologists are concluding that our formative years are extending beyond adolescence and are, in fact, spilling over into our college years. Writer Portoff believes that our collegiate years can be the years that matter most and that, moreover, college can make or break us. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a delight to have Paul Tuff on the line. Uh, the years that matter most, what are they, you may wonder? Well, according to Paul Tuff, they are our college years experience. And that's why he's written the book entitled The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. Paul Tuff is the best-selling author of How Children Succeed and some other previous works, too, as a matter of fact, prior to his latest work, The Years That Matter Most. In this latest work, he has spent six years writing his um, experience by talking with various students. Uh, he actually traveled to 21 states and interviewed over 100 students, amongst other persons, in a pursuit of trying to get a, a read on where, well, contemporary life is for many students from all different economic and ethnic backgrounds. The book is really an account of varied experience by varied persons. He has stated that to some extent, the book's creation seemed, well, like a penance of a sort that he had to pay for having dropped out from Columbia University and then later from McGill University. Now, evidently, Mr. Tuff, you were aptly and well-named for dropping out of college didn't break you, I'm happy to see. Let me ask you, did it in fact perhaps make you? It's a great question, and it's something that I wrestled with a lot as I was working on this book. It certainly is unusual to have um, someone write a book about college who didn't finish his BA uh, himself, in my case. Um, and in some ways, I feel like uh, the two things feel pretty separate. I, I think that, that in my case, college was not the right place for me. I ended up uh, in a, a beginning job in journalism after I dropped out for the second time. And for me, it was the educational experience that I needed doing an internship at Harper's Magazine. Uh, it was a place where I could learn more about what I, what I needed than anywhere else. Um, I think I was lucky to be able to enter the professional world without a BA. I think that had something to do with the time and something to do with um, some strokes of good luck. Um, but these days, I feel like without college degrees, it's very difficult to enter journalism or almost any other professional field. I'm inclined to agree with you, and I also sympathize with you. Uh, one of the persons I always admired was Peter Jennings, former uh, anchor of ABC News, Canadian by birth. And uh, he never had a college degree, never never bothered with it. And he didn't need to. I mean, first of all, his father was also a, uh, a broadcaster but, and journalist, so he, he garnered information by osmosis, I suppose, from his dad. But there's many people who are incredibly effective and extremely literate and brilliant. Woody Allen is another example. So we could go on and on and on and, uh, you know, let's, let's, let us not forget the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, never mm -hmm. went to university or college. So I, I think, and as much as I love America, and everyone knows I do that listens to this program, I think there's a, an unfortunate misplaced emphasis always on having an academic uh, degree when in fact persons do not necessarily require that to be 
either certainly intelligent or brilliant, such as yourself, or successful. So I'm, I'm actually glad to hear you say that, albeit myself being a holder of five degrees, but my early education was highly disrupted. So uh, I, I sympathize, and, and it was miraculous that I wound up in college. That's why I'm so interested in your book. You state that higher education doesn't work the way it used to. Now, why is that in your estimation? I think in the past, uh, higher education in the United States was the great engine of social mobility. It was the the thing that worked to um, level class differences, to allow people from uh, working class or lower class uh, backgrounds, family backgrounds, to achieve real middle class or or, uh, higher success. Mm. Um, And that still works for some kids sometimes. Uh, but what I found in my reporting was that it works much less effectively than it used to. Uh, and for so many low-income and first-generation students today, college instead seems to have become an obstacle for them to reach the middle class. Well, let me ask you, Is it uh, besides being an obstacle, is it uh, perhaps, and I, I don't mean this in any elitist sense, is it perhaps an unnecessary, alluding to what we just spoke about, an unnecessary burden, the idea that everybody has to go to college? Um, I think I think things have changed since the time of, of Peter Jennings and Woody Allen and even me, um, and I do think that uh, it is much more difficult than it was in those days for young people to achieve material success without a college degree, um, without at least some kind of college education. So part of my reporting was on uh, you know super achieving low income students who had their own difficulties making it through college, but mostly um, found their way to good colleges and succeeded, but. Less high-achieving, uh, low-income students, uh, when I followed them through the, their post-high school years, it is very difficult in the United States to find a, 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 a sort of stable, reliable pathway out of low-income service industry jobs. And so I think a lot of the young people that I was following, and certainly what I read in you know economics papers and sociology books about the people in that category, there isn't a good path without college, but we also haven't created a good path through college for those students. Uh, and, and that, I think, in terms of the policy side of my book, that is the big missing link. We just don't have a good pathway um, for people who get out of high school without a great love of academics, but still need some kind of credential, some kind of training, some kind of degree in order to succeed. Well, what about trade schools? I mean, that would probably be the natural thing that most listeners would say. Ask him about trade schools. What do you think about trade schools? Well, one of the things that I found is that the the distinction between trade schools and everything else is much less um, uh, clear than it used to be. I mean, trade schools in the United States mostly means community colleges. So I followed one student through a, a, a welding program at a community college in North Carolina. And welding has sort of been held out as uh, the great alternative to college. Like, we don't need kids to go to college because they can make so much money from welding. The reality, though, is you do need a degree. You need a two-year degree and not a four-year degree in order to uh, to succeed in college. Um, and it, But it's those colleges, it's community colleges that we have over the last couple of decades decades, especially um, underfunded to such a degree. So it was very difficult for this young man uh, to make his way through community college and get a, get a welding degree that would allow him um, to pursue that career. And it's also true that those jobs just are not as reliable and well-paying as they used to be. It is hard uh, these days to get a, uh, a manual labor job, to get the training for a manual labor, labor job, and then to have that pay you enough to support a family. So I think a lot of people who are in that cohort are looking for another solution, um, and we're not doing a good job of providing them with options. You say that we have, quote, 
created immense challenges at every stage of the college process for students from working class and low income families. What are they, those challenges that you believe have been created immensely? Well, I'd say that the two biggest ones are um, admissions and and uh, tuition. So, you know, to start with tuition, if you're from a lower income family, it's very hard to afford uh, college these days. College, uh, the way that we give uh, college tuitions, as everyone knows, have been rising. And the way that aid is distributed, uh, both at the federal level and at the institutional level, uh, now goes as much to high-income families as to low-income families. So if you're from a low-income family, it's much harder to get the kind of aid you need. You're spending much more of your family's income on a degree. Uh, And in admissions as well, there are um, a lot of things that have changed in terms of how admissions work, all of which tend to favor well-off students. So at some of the elite institutions, especially that I – where I spend time reporting – um, the, the, the factors that they consider in admissions tend to be SAT scores, which correlate with uh, income, um, partly because of expensive test prep that allows well-off families to, to get higher scores. Um, also, a lot of those schools favor uh, legacy admissions, so the kids whose parents went to those schools. They favor athletes from the kind of uh, sports that are played in private schools. You know, if you're great at squash, or lacrosse uh, or rowing crew, you have an advantage of getting into those schools, but you're only going to have played those sports if you went to the right kind of private school. So all of those things together um, have created a system where in our our most selective schools, it's very rare to find low-income students, and almost every student is from a high-income family. Well, some may say that given the last half century, uh, in fact, more than half a century since the 1960s, there has been a ardent desire to provide state low-cost education and low-cost colleges and and low-cost universities, almost in every state of the union, subsidized tuition breaks, and moreover, full non-payback Pell Grants, for instance, for students to uh, avail the opportunity to get an education. So with that being a given, is it fair to say that there isn't sufficient opportunity for poorer students to go to university or college? I mean, you, very often you can only get what you can afford, be it a car or anything. Uh, is that not fair to say the same should be expected of education? As long as there is a provision where you can get an associate's or you can get a bachelor's, what's wrong with the state school? Um, well, I'll say two things. One, one is that um, it's much harder now. We're, we, we, especially over the last 20 years, uh, state governments are spending much less on higher education than they have. And so the tuitions at those schools have gone way up and funding has gone way down. And so there has been this shift, especially over the last 20 years, away from this idea that a public higher education is something that should be available, at least in some form, to everyone to a, a system where it's something that individual students have to figure out and pay for on their own. Certainly there are, there are ways to get aid, but that aid goes less far than it used to, and those institutions get less funding from uh, governments than they used to. So I think that system doesn't work great. Um, and I do, I do think there's, there is a way that that's certainly true, that, that um, it, it, we don't need to send every student to Princeton. We don't need to pay that kind of money for every student. However, I feel like that, that, that sort of minimum idea of, of what kind of higher education uh, the public should provide to students has been slipping when, at a moment where the economy suggests we should be moving in the other way, at a moment where the economy is saying more and more young people need at least some kind of uh, post-high school credential. 
governments, both the federal government and state governments, have been saying, no, we're going to spend less and less on higher education, especially at the, the sort of lower selectivity schools, at regional public institutions, at community colleges. We're spending less and less on that so that those students have less and less opportunity. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Alan Campbell, your host, and I'm speaking with Paul Tuff, who has written his latest work called The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. As a college professor, university professor myself, uh, I've lectured on five continents and I've taught on the East and West Coast at both public and private institutions. I can tell you that enrollment goes up during bad economic times, not good economic times. We are currently in good economic times. How does that square with your perception of uh, even institutional indifference to students who are, are not faring well? I'm not sure I'm getting your question exactly, but it's certainly enrollment is down over the last few years. I mean, it, it, it spiked uh, 10 years ago during the at the beginning of the Great Recession, um, and it is down somewhat since then. Um, and I think that, you know, I think there are some ways that that's natural when, especially if you're if you're a student who doesn't love uh, school and you think that you can get out of high school and find some opportunity that doesn't involve college, um, then you're going to be more likely to, to find another path. I tend to think in the United States we need to do more to encourage more students to to go to college and to get some sort of credential or higher education diploma um, in all times, good and bad. And and um, you know it's certainly something that's happened in lots of other countries. Uh, the United Kingdom over the uh, last twenty years has greatly increased the number of people completing some kind of college degree. But in the United States, we're going in the opposite direction, um, especially during the recession. But continuing after that, we're saying. No, that's, it's not as important for kids to get a college degree. Um, and I think uh, there are certainly parts of the labor force that are suffering as a result. Well, there are various ancillary add-ons to college education in the United States, one of which is athleticism. So now we have a situation where we have banners essentially for different institutions. We call them institutions for higher learning. Um, but let's face it, a lot of the revenue, certainly for, for namesake alone, but also for other programs at universities comes from CBS, ESPN, following college football, for instance, every Saturday or on the weekends or given uh, other occasions. Is that really skewing and confusing what education is supposed to be about in the United States? I think it may be. I mean, I think I think there's something about the college of athletics that one sees on TV that are um, that do skew your your image of what is going on at colleges and what is going on with college athletics. I mean, one of the one of the things that really surprised me in my reporting is that the you know the athletics that you see on TV tend to be and the ones that make huge amounts of revenue tend to be basketball and football. And the students who who are on those teams are often students of color, often students from lower income backgrounds. Uh, that is not true of college athletics as a whole. As I was saying before, most uh, college athletes are. Uh, um, actually more well-off than average students. They're mostly doing these sort of elite sports that are popular in, in private schools, and so their college athletic experience, I think, is very different. Um, so the fact that that small minority of college athletes gets all this attention, I think, is sort of an artifact more to do with, with Americans' relationship to sports than it, uh, than it is Americans' relationship to um, higher education. Uh, but I think it does, it does sort of warp our image because we think of the, those college athletes um, as a whole as being a lot like the, the you know, football players for the University of Alabama. For, for the most part, they're not. 
You've referenced disparity as far as uh, racial issues are concerned for enrollment at universities. We have now a very delicate situation where at some of the Ivy League schools, we have Asian students who evidently, and it's brought about lawsuits, are being penalized simply for being Asian and uh, being too numerous at universities, and it's construed at the cost of potentially other people coming into programs. So there's a, there's a difference in as far as expectation, even scoring and what have you. Is that fair? My, I mean, the thing that strikes me about this, so that, that lawsuit at Harvard, which is still being adjudicated right now, the thing that strikes me about it is that, that the, the, the premise of it is that at a place like Harvard, there are, are too many uh, black students and not enough Asian American students. Um, and, you know, when you look at the numbers at those schools, uh, in fact, it's much easier to get into those colleges as an Asian American student than as uh, a black American student. About 8% of the students at the at Ivy League schools are African American, and about 15% of students um, graduating from high school are African American. So it's not like there's this huge over-representation. There's actually an under-representation of black students at, at Harvard and schools like it. I think that, that the, the, the other premise of those lawsuits is that the best way to measure students' uh, ability to succeed at school is SAT and ACT scores. Um, and a lot of my book is about uh, those standardized tests and how they tend to favor certain students. So if you, if you judge uh, high school students only by their SAT and their ACT scores, um, it is true. You would, you would uh, admit many more Asian-American students and fewer uh, black and Latino students. Um, but to my mind, those tests are not actually the best, uh, the best measure of which students are most deserving of a great education and most likely to succeed in that education. Um, and so I think the kind of holistic admissions that those colleges use are, is actually a good thing. Uh, my, my complaint is just that those, those holistic admissions still tend to favor um, high-income white and Asian students over everybody else to such a degree. Recently, we've had a very interesting evolution take place in the Democratic uh, Party, particularly with the candidates. And Bernie Sanders, for a long time, was almost the singular voice advocating for free tuition at universities and colleges. Now, there are numerous ones. What do you make of that? Do you think it will happen? going to happen. Um, I, you know, I think that those policies in many cases come from um, a good and understandable place, that uh, that there isn't enough opportunity in higher education, that higher edu- opportunity in higher education tends to go to the, the families that already have the most resources, and that, you know, t- tuition bills uh, and um, student loans are often uh, way too high and really are a real obstacle for a lot of families. That said, simply making tuition free or, or nullifying past student loans uh, – the economists who I pay attention to on this subject say that that would actually benefit um, exactly the same sorts of students who are benefiting right now, uh, that the, the, the kids who need help are the ones who are struggling just to make it – to find the right kind of college and to make it into college. And, and students who actually have a BA uh, from whatever family they come from tend to be the more privileged kids in our society. So I think um, that might be sort of an opening salvo in a conversation that may lead to some better federal policies on higher education that really do um, promote social mobility and and help students uh, who right now are struggling with college, uh, with paying for college. But that idea of free tuition or nullifying student loans to me isn't the right approach. If you're just joining us, this is Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, speaking with Paul Tuff. He is the author of the new book, The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. 
One of the things I've I've observed, and and you've we've kind of in a in a backwards way alluded to it already, and that is the if you will, acceleration or amplification of the need for degrees. There was a time, as you've alluded to and mentioned, that we did not necessarily need a college degree to get a, a relatively decent job. You could just go on the on the merits of your ability and natural skills. Then it became that, okay, you've got to have a degree of some sort or another to be, in order to be in the workplace and be able to uh, adequately function. There's been now... A new wave of if you have a BA, that's not sufficient. You've got to have a master's degree. And if you don't have a master's degree, then you've got to you know, go for the PhD, the FUD, as I call it. And so when does this end? Well, um, uh, here, here's the way I look at it. I mean, I, I certainly think that there are, there are some people who spend too long in college who, who um, you know, don't, uh, aren't able to function in the rest of the world. And for them, yes, getting more and more degrees is sort of the thing that they do, and it's not always the, the uh, most constructive approach. For most students, though, I feel like they are responding to cues in the economy that are telling them um, that they need more skills and they need more education in order to succeed. And, and if you look back at the last, well, certainly 100 years, but even further uh, in, in the history of American education, that's what always happens. So uh, jobs get more complicated, and the economy sends messages to young people saying they need more education to, in order to succeed, and uh, then usually the public uh, invests in that and supports that. I, I wrote a little in the final chapter of my book about the history that I hadn't known before, about a, a time in American history called the high school movement. It was from about 1910 to 1940. Um, and at the beginning of that movement, very few students, I think 10% of, of young people in the United States were getting a high school degree. Uh, most people stopped after elementary school or middle school. Uh, and at the end of that movement, uh, it was more than 50%. So a huge shift in American education during this period. And at that point, it wasn't about you know young people trying to become more more elite or wasting their time in school. It was that workplaces had changed. Even farms, uh, certainly there were a lot of people leaving farms and going to work in uh, either in factories or in offices as clerks. And they needed not necessarily a college degree, but they needed the kind of extra skills that students got in high schools. And what was fascinating to me about that period was was that there weren't a lot of, of debates like we have now about like you know what who should pay for this and what what education do students really need and isn't it good enough to have what we had? Uh, instead, communities got together and pooled their money and started high schools because they knew their young people needed this, these extra skills in order to succeed in the marketplace. Now it's a hundred years later, um, and the the job market has changed again. Technology has changed. In order to succeed in, in today's jobs that pay decent wages, you need certain skills. Uh, and the market is saying you need more than a high school degree. Now you need, you need something more. What's remarkable to me about it is that, that the public is not responding the way that the public did 100 years ago in the United States and saying, okay, let's get together as communities and, uh, and pay for this. Let's, you know, this is a public um, good, not just a private good. Let's get to a very practical nitty-gritty part of education, uh, a particular issue that annoys me beyond belief, and that is the exponential increasing cost of textbooks. I'm a bit of a renegade as a professor in that regard. Now, let me tell you what really goes on, and I'm, I'm risking here um, uh, being viewed poorly by my peers. There is pressure to have multiple textbooks for a course, and the more textbooks that a professor requires, the more prestige they have, supposedly, in the eyes of their peers, but also, without question, at the expense, literally, of their students. 
Moreover, publishers, textbook publishers, will just simply rewrite or rearrange chapters, slap some new pictures on and a new cover, and then have a new edition for a textbook. Uh, in some disciplines, you may have the 21st or 22nd or 23rd edition of a book. My question is, if you can't get it right by the fourth edition, maybe you should hang it up. And yet this is uh, an incredible wastage of money in my estimation. What did the students that you spoke with uh, say regarding anything in relation to the purchase of textbooks? Um, that's fascinating. I feel like you, you, you certainly know more, much more about that question than I do. Um, uh, so textbooks was one thing that students mentioned, but a lot of what they mentioned was just the, the number of uh, surprise and hidden fees that they found when they got to college. There were just, I mean, especially for students from low-income backgrounds whose families didn't have a history of college going, getting to college was just this shock in all sorts of ways, um, and one of the big ones was money. There's just suddenly you're in a place where there are charges for everything that you didn't expect. You're often, even beyond textbooks, you have to, um, you're surrounded by uh, students often from families that have more money than you do, and everyone's going out to eat, and you've got to figure out uh, what to do. Um, so I think it is a shock for a lot of students. Textbooks is a part of that, but not the only part. Well, Paul Toth, let me bestow on you right now, figuratively speaking, the sheepskin, and give you an honorary PhD for understanding of the perils of contemporary students. Sir, you have been an utter delight. Uh, the book is entitled The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. And it's uh, a wonderful read. And we invite you back anytime you wish, Dr. Paul, to be a part of this program. Thank you so very much. Thank you. I'm honored. I appreciate it. Take care. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.